from Isaiah chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are, de who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so uh, turning to our passage, Isaiah 43. Um, I wonder if you noticed the kind of the central idea here that we got right in verse 12, where, and out of verse 10, where I think God raises our gaze to help us to recognize a very holy and significant calling that we have been given as God's people. In verse 10, it says very explicitly, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And if we miss it, we see it again in verse 12, when he says, I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you might recognize that these words are echoed actually by Jesus. Jesus, when he is about to ascend into heaven, he says to his apostles, you shall be my witnesses to Judea and Jerusalem and the ends of the earth. And as you continue through Acts, as you continue through the New Testament, it becomes clear 
that while the apostles in some ways are the first witnesses, they're the ones who actually saw Jesus rise from the dead, the church kind of continues that witness. That we are called to be witnesses. So by the time you get to Revelation, one of the ways that the church is depicted is a pair of witnesses declaring the truth to the world. In other words, our calling is to be witnesses. And that's a very significant calling. It, it, it would have been even clearer how significant it was in the day of Jesus or in the day of Israel. Because in that time, if you wanted to know what was true, the way you would find that out was through witnesses. If you think about it, many of the ways that we have of trying to verify whether something happened or not, they would not have had. They did not have video. They did not have photography. They did not have DNA matching. In fact, even documentation was rare. So if there was a dispute of fact, what you needed to know what was true was witnesses. If, if Abe and Joe neighbors argued over whose cow this cow was, the only way you would be able to really know who was right was if there was a third party, a witness who could tell you. Even when contracts are made, if land is sold, rarely would you actually have things written down because papyrus was expensive and many weren't even literate. So what would you do? You would bring a witness to see the transaction that took place so that they could attest to what is true. Witnesses were essential in coming to understand what is real and, and verifying and knowing the facts. And so when God says to us, you are my witnesses, he's telling us something quite significant about our role. Our role is to help the world to see what is true. Specifically, what is true about God. So even here in our passage, I said verse 10, he calls us witnesses, or specifically speaking to Israel. The verse right before, he kind of imagines a courtroom scene, and he invites all of the nations to come together for, for kind of a verification of fact. And, and notice what he says in verse 9. All the nations gather together, the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. He's saying, all you nations have all your gods. Amongst all of you nations, do you have a single witness who can say, our God said this is what's going to happen, and then it did? Bring your proof, because we're trying to figure out who God is. And then after God says, all right, all you nations, I guess you have no witnesses. He turns to Israel and says, now you, you are my witnesses. You, you are the ones who I am calling to know what is true and, and to declare what is true. He says in verse 10, you are my witnesses, declare the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. So if Israel is asking, how is it that we're witnesses? God's like, well, this is what happened. I called you. And when I called you, I brought you into a relationship with me. So that as you are experiencing me, as you're experiencing me speaking to you, as you're experiencing me caring for you, you would come first to, to notice, to know, and then to believe. And then as you believe, to be able to understand the truth that I am God. And as, as you come to experience me by being my people, now as you know, you can testify to the world, yes, this is God. 
And it's the same way for us. As, as God has called us to himself, first, we come to understand maybe the truths of the gospel in some small way. We, we hear about what Jesus has done, but at some point it moves from just being something we hear to something we experience, where we realize that God loves us. And we start paying attention to how God is caring for us, and we start experiencing God's goodness to us, and we come to move from believing, to, from knowing to believing, to understanding the truth that God is God. We are his witnesses. And that is, that is a sacred calling. If, if the church were somehow to be removed from this world, and it, it never will be, we have God's promise that it won't, but if it were, the greatest loss this world would have would not be suddenly the church's lack of charity, because there's much the church gives to the world, but that wouldn't be the greatest loss. It wouldn't be the church's ability to bring people together in community, although that would be important. The single greatest loss that the world would have is they would lose the testimony the witness of the church, the, the, the living evidence that we are meant to offer declaring that the Lord is God. Your calling and my calling is to be God's witnesses. Now, oftentimes when we dwell on that fact, we, we go a certain direction. That is, when we think of, of being a witness... As Christians, when we start focusing on that idea that we see throughout the Bible, we, we focus on the speaking side of things. Have you, have you ever noticed, like, in, the, in general English, when people talk about witnessing something, they're talking about seeing, right? Someone was, they witnessed an event. But in Christian jargon, when we talk about witnessing, what do we usually mean? We're talking about telling people about Jesus. And, and that is a very important part of witnessing, right? To bear witness, to say to someone else, this is what is true. And so if we were to go just to the next verse in our passage, we see God speaking in verse 21 right outside of our passage that, that God called his people to declare his praises. That's, that's verbally witnessed. That is a sacred calling that we've been given. But I want to suggest to you that if we immediately think about witnessing just in terms of speaking, we miss something really important. Before you and I can help the world see the truth, we ourselves must recognize it. Before we can say things that we need to say to the world, we first have to see what God is showing us. For us to bear witness, we first need to be witnesses. And that actually is what our passage is about. When God is speaking to Israel, he's speaking about their calling to be witnesses. It might have occurred to you when I said that Israel's calling is to be witnesses to the world, living evidence that, well, they're not very good at it. I mean, for, for 2,000 years, the people of Israel have existed. They've had this task of being witnesses. And we see maybe like four or five conversions throughout those 2,000 years. And we wonder, what happened? If they're supposed to be the truth bringers who are bearing witness to the world, why is no one seeing it? And oftentimes, when people speak about how God's people failed in the Old Testament, they'll speak about a failure to tell everyone else. And there's probably some truth to that. But it's interesting that that's not what God zeroes in on as their problem. 
Our passage actually is longer than what was read. If we were to kind of include the whole passage, we would have started eight verses earlier. And eight verses earlier, we see God speaking about Israel. And listen to what he says. Listen, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send. Now, if you haven't figured it out yet, he's talking about Israel. Israel, you're blind, you're deaf, you're my messenger, and yet you can't hear. There's a problem, right? Who is blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. So if I were to say what's like a job description, like some of the key qualifications for being a witness, I would think that listening and seeing would be near number one and number two, right? And yet here we see God saying, Israel, you are my witnesses, and yet you don't see, and yet you don't hear. And as we were to, if we were to continue on in that passage, we would notice that it's not the fact that they don't actually have eyes. He says you have eyes. It's not that they're not seeing things literally. It's that as they are beholding what's going on, they are not actually able to comprehend what's taking place. They're missing it. So he says, I gave you my law. My law was beautiful. My law gave you righteousness. It was good. And you turned away from it because you didn't recognize it. And then when you turned away, I gave you punishment. Because I told you I would, and yet when I punished you to try to warn you and bring you back to me, once again, you missed it. You didn't see. I have been showing you myself again and again and again. You have been experiencing my care and my love for you again and again and again. You have seen it, but you have not recognized it. That's their problem. They're going to be bad witnesses because even though they are seeing God, they are not recognizing it. And I'll tell you, as I've been thinking about it this week, I've wondered how often might that be the case for you and for me? As we have been brought into a relationship with God, how often is God showing us things and we just don't notice it? So, uh, Scripture says the whole world is filled with the glory of God. Everything else is crying out about the greatness of God, but do we notice it? Scripture says that God is working everything for your good. But do we see it? See, the problem is it's, it's quite possible to look at something and experience something and not really recognize what's going on. And we, we know that. There, there are countless examples that we can think of that has nothing to do even with our relationship with God. Quick example. Say you are texting a friend. And you text your friend saying, hey, I'm having, I'm having a really hard time. Could we, could, could, could we talk? And so you send the text. You know, here's the voice. I mean, like, that's the sound. And then you're waiting. And then you look at your phone an hour later and still nothing from your friend. Well, okay, they're probably in a meeting or something. And two hours later, an entire day later, and you've never heard anything from your friend. What do you conclude in that moment? goodness, my friend, I can't believe they are being so self-centered or so selfish to not, don't they understand when I said this? I mean, maybe, maybe you're getting really frustrated with your friend for being so flaky and a bad friend. Or, or, or maybe in that moment you go, oh, my friend is probably so tired of me complaining. I'm always asking for help. I, I, I probably should never have even written that. You're drawing conclusions, but, but really the smart thing to do is to say neither of those things, right? It's to stay, take a step back and to go, you know what? 
My friend has always responded well in the past. And, and, and he or she has been there for me. And as I think about it, they almost never are looking at their phone. I can probably assume that they just haven't seen the text yet. The only difference between the two is the second one, you are allowing the past to shape the way you view the present. And suddenly, you bear witness to something in a very different way. There are countless examples like this. Think about, say, the CIA intercepts some sort of transmission, and, and it looks like it could be something nefarious. Like, is, is this just idle chatter, or is this a terrorist plot that they've just kind of uncovered? How do you find out? Well, you know what's going to happen. The analysts will suddenly go through all of the data they have with these people who have spoken. What have they said before? What is their track record? They will use the past to help them to understand the present. And, and what we see in our passage here is that that is exactly what, what Israel has needed to do. That is the problem they've had. They have been looking at things in the moment instead of recognizing how God has been. And God is saying in some ways, you need to take what I have shown you in the past. You need to remember because as you remember, it will help you to see right now. So I, um, I don't know if you've noticed, occasionally when I'll say, like, it's verse, and I'll kind of, like, pause and maybe do the verse 12 thing. And I, I, like, things are getting kind of fuzzy for me. Um, I actually think it's just the print is not as, as sharp as it used to be. I think that's the problem. But I've, I've learned that, and, and I have yet to surrender until today by bringing these with me, that, that this suddenly moves things into sharp focus. Which is, is a miracle to me. But, but the point is, sometimes we, to be able to see things clearly, need some help, right? And, and what God is actually saying is, you need to, kind of like putting on glasses, take what you know from the past and kind of put those on to see what's happening right now. And, and when you remember, then suddenly you see things differently. So, so God gives three kind of different examples throughout our passage where he is calling his people, he's calling us to remember so that we can understand even right now as we're bearing witness what God is doing. He, he starts by saying, remember our relationship. So if you notice at the very beginning of our passage where it says, but now, but now, he, he's calling Israel to a different way of seeing things. They have encountered grief and they have not encountered grief well. Uh, perhaps you've noticed that sometimes it seems like two different people can go through almost the exact same terrible situation, say something like the loss of a child, and respond to it very differently. One might respond to this grief and speak of how it was excruciating, and yet they also experienced, experienced the kindness of God, somehow holding them in the midst of the most hard moments. And you'll hear someone else who will say, it was excruciating, and I am never talking to God again. Now, it's interesting, and Israel really is the second of these categories. We experienced something excruciating. God clearly left us. I am never talking to God again. And what God does is he says, I want you to put on your glasses. I want you to remember 
our relationship. But now, he says, remember these things. What does he say about, he says, now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, verse 1, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. He is reminding them of their story. Do you remember? Your great, 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 great grandfather, Jacob, I, I, I brought him to myself. Even though he wasn't that interested, I, I warmed his heart. I gave him a name. I gave him Israel. I was there when he had children. And when those children had children, I, I was the one who nurtured your people until they were a nation. And when they were stuck in slavery, I was willing to take down Egypt to rescue you. So verse 3, it says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. I give Egypt as your ransom. Do you not understand, Israel, how precious you are to me? I mean, verse 4, you are precious in my eyes, you are honored, and I love you. And, and God could invite us to put on those very same glasses, couldn't he? He could say, you know, before I even made the world, I knew you. Before you were even born, I didn't just give up Egypt for you, I gave up my life I gave up my son for you. And I have called you by name to myself. And my spirit is dwelling in you, giving you new life, forming you. I see you. Do you not realize how precious you are to me? Do you not realize that I love you? See, until you put that relationship on like glasses and remember those things, you will not be able to see. Verse 2, God is speaking of what's going on right now. When you are passing through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. Do you see what he's saying? He's like, you are, you are experiencing some pretty difficult stuff. He's not saying you're not ever going to see water. You're going to see the floodwaters you are right now. You're in exile. You're going to see the fires of burning you are right now. But don't you see how I'm taking care of you in the midst of it? The, the floods are not going to drown you. The fire is not going to consume you. Now, do you see how, a, a, how two different ways of seeing it are going to see things in different ways? If you don't remember who God is and you're experiencing that difficulty, you're experiencing the water, you're experiencing the fire, God is against me. But if you are able to put those glasses on, you can remember God has been with me from the very beginning. And, and look, even as I am experiencing this, he's taking care of me. Uh, some of you might be familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata. She, was, uh, she is a person who is a quadriplegic who is paralyzed at age 17. And I was reading recently um, uh, reflections that she was making on the last 50 years of being a quadriplegic. And, and one of the most remarkable things to me that she said was she said she thanks God every day for her wheelchair. And she said the reason is because through this experience I have been able to taste the grace of God. And she says grace in, in tiny moments like, like stepping stones leading you from one experience to the next. The beauty of such grace is that it eclipses the suffering until one July morning you look back and you see five decades of God working in a mighty way. Grace softens the edges of past pains, helping to highlight the eternal. 
What you are left with is peace that's profound, joy that is unshakable, and faith that is ironclad. Now there's weight to those words because she is someone who has lived it. She has been able to see in the midst of the most deep trial God's grace. And the reason she is being able to give that testimony, the reason she's able to bear that witness is because she has become convinced of the way God has cared for her in the past. So she's able to see God's love for her in the present. Remember my relationship to you, God says. And then secondly, God says, remember that I'm in charge. So in, in verse 10, again, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you might know and believe me and understand that I am he. And if you skip down to verse 12, I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses. What he's saying there, I declared and I saved and I proclaimed. I called my shot ahead of time. So some of you might be familiar with one of the famous stories about Babe Ruth. It was 1933 World Series. Yankees were against the Cubs. It was a tie game, 4-4 in game three. And the Cubs were trying to get inside Babe Ruth's head. They were yelling at him, and, and he was at the plate. And according to at least some witnesses, he makes this gesture, and it looks like he's pointing the center field. And a, a ball comes right by, and he takes the pitch, and they're yelling at him and mocking him, and he does it again. And then the next time the pitch comes, and he swings and hits the ball right over the center field fence as a home run. He called his shot. Now, there's some disagreement about whether that's what he meant or not, but it's a great story. And it's a great story because there's something very cool about the idea of someone being so in control. I mean, to hit a ball like that so in control that he's able to say ahead of time and then do it. But that's just baseball. God says here, there's no controversy about this. God says, I, I said before I did. I, I told you, when you were in Egypt, when you were slaves, when you were hopeless, you believed nothing could possibly save you, I said, I'm going to bring you out, and I'm going to save you. I, I declared, and I saved, and what did I do? You know what I did. I, I brought you out with those ten plagues. I brought you through the waters. I brought you through the wilderness. I fed you manna. I gave you this land. Before anything happened, I told you what would happen, and then I did it, because I am in charge, and you know that I am God. And again, think of how God could tell us the very same thing. That the very book that we are studying, no one disagrees about the fact that it was written many centuries before Jesus. That is completely agreed upon by all scholars. And yet, what have we seen and what will we see in these verses? We see God declaring that a king will come from Galilee one who will be rejected by some, but who will bring peace, who will be called mighty God, one who will be so full of the Spirit, who will bring righteousness and declare truth in such a way that it's not just for Israel that he will do this, but somehow the nations will come streaming to him. And yet, as he does it, he will do it in a humble way so that he will be rejected and despised by people. And ultimately, he will carry our iniquities. Everything I just said is here written centuries before Jesus because God called his shot. And then he did exactly what he said he would do because 
he is in charge. Now, if we can remember that, if we can put that on like glasses, it opens our eyes to see what's going on right now differently. I don't know about you, sometimes I will get sucked into a news story. The thing that has kind of sucked me in is the coronavirus. And I don't know how you feel about it. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know what to make of the fact that some people are like, ah, it's just the flu. Other people are like, it's World War III kind of levels. Ah! And, you know, like I'm reading, it's like, okay, I don't know what to make of it. But it feels kind of scary because I know nothing. But I'll tell you, the more that I look at that, it's not going to somehow illuminate me and give me an understanding of everything. But if I can put my glasses on, I can remember that God has called the shot. He has said, I work all things for your good. Which means even something that feels chaotic and out of control, I know God is in charge. I don't know what he's doing, but I can know that he is doing something and that in the end it will be good and I can be looking for it. God says, remember, I'm in charge. And finally, we see God saying, remember how unpredictably powerful I am. When you get to verses 16 and 17, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Again, we've got God reminding them of what happened in the Exodus. And what he's specifically speaking about is, is the Red Sea. And what seems to be especially important about this moment is just how impossible it would have seemed. I mean, if you are the people of Israel, there is no hope. You have a, a, almost an ocean on one side, and you've got the mightiest army in the world coming at you, and you have really nothing to fight with. If you were writing this story, any solution to it, people would go, come on, that doesn't make sense, because there is nothing possible. And yet God does something that no one would have thought of. He, he breaks apart the Red Sea, he brings them through, and he crushes the army with the ocean right after. This is something that would never have occurred to anyone because God is so unimaginably, creatively powerful that he's able to do beyond our imagination. And again, God could say the same thing to you and to me, couldn't he? I mean, people seem incurably sinful. The gap between God and humanity is far greater than we could imagine, and yet somehow God bridges it. He actually becomes one of us. He actually somehow uses a Roman torture device to destroy sin and conquer Satan. And he conquers death, rising from the dead, and through very feeble messengers, he's somehow able to change the world by sharing the gospel. He is unimaginably powerful. And it's only as we put on those glasses and remember that we can begin to see around us differently. So verse 19, he says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? He's saying, do you have your eyes open? Are you ready to see something once again unpredictable? See, if we don't think of God in those terms, we will miss it. In the 18th century, there was kind of a spiritual malaise, a sleepiness to some degree in, in North America. And then 
God, by his spirit, did something remarkable. It's known as the Great Awakening. There was revival where suddenly people who did not seem to care at all suddenly were awake. At times they were weeping and conviction and, and, and joy at times. And there were some people, some pastors like this, I don't buy it. Because God doesn't work like this. And in their minds, they think they're saying God couldn't work like this. They were missing the very work of God that they were witnesses to. You know, who's to say, could God possibly right now in our lives, in our community, in the sleepy suburbs of Chicago be doing a new thing? I don't know. But I do know that if we don't recognize that God could be doing that, we probably won't notice when he is doing that. God says, remember who I am Remember that I am unimaginably powerful and look and see. See, the, the point of our passage is, is simple. You and I, we are the evidence bearers to the world around us of the reality of who God is. We have the sacred responsibility of being witnesses. And the first and foremost task of being witnesses is to see. To see, to put on the glasses of remembering who God is, how he loves us, how he is in charge, how he is, is creatively powerful, and to see in our lives as God day after day is at work, that we might experience, that we might know, that we might declare, and that we might understand deeply and recognize that our Lord is God. That is what our passage calls us to. And so now I'd like to invite us to just spend some time in prayer. Um, maybe to acknowledge where we have stopped believing that God could be doing something in our life. Or stopped recognizing God's care for us because we felt cynical or whatever. But let's spend some time confessing our lack of faith and, and inviting God to change us. And I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes time.